0: You're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick, brought to you by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, our guest is Bradley Bukas. He is the Director of Business Development for Idealist, and also has a, a side hustle, so to speak, as an elected officer in the city of Stanford in Connecticut here, where he's a representative of District 1 in that city. Welcome to the Caring Economy,
1: Brad. Thank you, Toby, and thank you for having me on. And I wouldn't call this, the board position a side hustle necessarily because side hustles, I hope for other people make the money, but that's completely volunteer. So that, <laughs> I don't know if side hustle is the right description of that, but it certainly is a hustle. If anything else. <laughs> and
0: and and thank you for your service because I feel that anyone who is in public service in this country, in an elected office, it's an avocation. They're doing it above and beyond their day job. And it does take a lot of time and effort to do it well. So thank you for that. And we'll talk about that today on the carrying economy. So Brett, I, I know uh, I first came to you through the idealist because I followed the idealist for years. Uh, idealist I'm just for our audience sake I'll say it it connects millions of idealists people who want to do good and they connect with you connect them with opportunities for action and collaboration all over the world so can you tell us a little bit first about Brad bucus and then we'll talk about idealists how sure. did you get you got?
1: I can tell you that and I recently changed my name uh, I got married and took my husband's last name. So I, it's sort of weird for me to hear people say Bucus, Bradley Bucus. This might be my official first public, you know, foray with that last name, which just changed recently. But um, so we Michael, well. yeah. if anybody is Googling any of this, uh, Bradley Michelson probably will come up a little bit more clearly. But so I, I grew up as Bradley Michelson in rural Wisconsin, about an hour outside of Chicago, where a lot of the towns were Lake Country, probably similar to Hudson Valley, which is I think where you are, close enough to the city uh, where people commuted a little bit, but far enough away where there are still farms and, uh, and things to do. And my family was really involved in the church and volunteering. And that was sort of my first look into what, you know, giving back meant. It was pretty much all through the church at that point. And as an 18 year old, I started to work and I worked in retail a family had a chain of shoe stores that went to our church and I started working there and got really interested in international aspects of business. And though Wisconsin was bucolic and beautiful and I loved being by the lake, I really needed more excitement. So I wanted to be in the middle of Manhattan. So I decided to, uh, on my own, even without my parents traveling with me, while I, when I was 17, went to go to New York just to make sure I did like it. And then moved there after seeing it once uh, and went to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, where I studied the business of the industry, the consumer goods industry, particularly apparel. And I always loved the amount of work that goes into making products that go from around the world, they get made somewhere, they go somewhere else, things get added to them, then they get packaged somewhere else, then they get shipped all over the world, then they get shipped to all the stores. I always thought that was just really fascinating. and. I had a really enjoyable time as in my early 20s in Manhattan, going to FIT, and the economy was booming. I'd started working with a a young company that had uh, just secured Lenny Kravitz as sort of a spokesperson who started wearing some of the clothes that we were designing at some of his rock concerts. So very quickly, we became the place for rock stars to go and get their clothes and sometimes we do customs sometimes they would just come into the stores and hang out with us and that attracted a lot of attention from outside investors uh, new balance and eventually invested in our company and it was just a really exciting time in the early 2000s and then when the economy crashed and that was actually the first time that i got into bringing charitable work into the business We had events with organizations such as Housing Works in New York, where we would have an event, you know, get people to buy some clothes and donate money all at the same time. And we did a number of those. And also, it was a little bit my first foray into uh, municipal politics. We were one of the first stores in the meatpacking district of New York, and very quickly became involved in the sort of development of that area when it came to how were the streets going to be managed what was the zoning going to look like what was going to be allowed there so it's really interesting uh that experience very early in my 20s really shaped me more than i thought it would and so the, the recession of 2008 sort of came and people stopped buying four thousand dollar leather pants and at the same time i started thinking to myself you know this is uh, as international as this business is and it- fun as it is, maybe this isn't the lifestyle I want, because international business also means that you are up on international time zones pretty much, you know, almost 24 hours. There were times uh, after the fashion business, I went out to run a couple of consumer goods uh, companies. And there were times that I would be in the office at 7am in New York uh, to get the last minute decisions made for my team in China, work all day in New York. My team in China would wake up at 9 p.m. I'd be on WhatsApp with them until two or three in the morning. And I would do that for years. And that gets a little exhausting. And at the same time, I wasn't doing much giving back of my own time. And eventually I, I, I was able to save some money throughout all that process. I invested into some of my businesses. And I was at a very lucky point in life where I sort of, you know, had my dog walking in Central Park every day. And I was like, I still don't really see this as fulfilling. As much as I love the dog, Mia, who's the love of my life, besides my husband, I, I guess probably the first love of my life, and he's maybe the second. She's the real love of my life, actually. Uh, that. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, life was good, and but I realized I was still missing something. And it was those Wisconsin roots of volunteering that I kind of thought, okay, this is the time in life where I'm going to do this now. So I started looking for opportunities, and I just happened across a deal. Somebody had recommended to me to it. And one thing led to another. And the founder, Ami, who's actually sitting about 10 feet away from me right now, uh, reached out to a few of us who were on the site, new on the site, and wanted us to come in to do some focus grouping about new products that Ideals could do. So I eventually landed Ideals by volunteering with them for an entire summer. And we were looking at where Ideals could go in the next 25 years. It was 25 years old or 20 years old at the time. And there's so much more that could be done when it comes to connecting people around social good. So the team really started from that volunteer focus group and started thinking about all the products and services that we could uh, that we could do.
0: I, I wanna go back to Ruth, I'm also a Midwesterner, but, but first, why don't we talk a little bit about Idealist? Could you tell our listeners a bit more about it for those who don't know about it?
1: Yep, so we started in 1996 and Ami, the founder, used to uh, go around the Upper West Side of Manhattan and put on telephone poles lists of the nonprofit organizations that were around. His, his mindset was in the place of there are so much you know, there are so many problems in the world, and there are so many people to help solve those problems. And all we need to do is connect the people with the problems. So resources can be shared, ideas can be shared, attention can be given to those that need it. So he literally went around and put lists of the nonprofits on telephone poles just to bring awareness to them. And then the internet sort of became a thing in the early '90s, and as soon as you could attach a database to a website, which was like '96-ish, uh, he sort of a light bulb went off, and he, you know, said, "This is what I want to do. I'm putting this online." And as and and he he founded it as a nonprofit organization. So really, one of the first nonprofit organizations. Uh, the same year that eBay and Hotmail and some of these other major for-profit brands started uh, was was 96 when that technology changed. And what we realized soon afterwards was that the industry needed not only a a sort of directory of nonprofits, but the nonprofits that were part of the directory that he had created online needed people to serve them, to to work with them and staff them and volunteers to help, you know, support those, those nonprofits. So, suddenly we had thousands of new nonprofits coming to the site every year, signing up and posting jobs. And we became then sort of the leading job board of the social good industry. Now, 140,000 organizations around the world post jobs, internships and volunteer opportunities. Uh, More than a million jobs have been posted. And we're pretty much in every country except for North Korea, as you can imagine with users and, uh, and organizations that are looking for people to help them out.
0: Wow. Um, I'm, I'm struck at how important it is because I know having run communications at Christie's auction house for almost a decade and having been on various boards myself like New York Foundation of the Arts, you are the default site when someone is looking for a career, a job, entry level or more senior, particularly in the cultural space, but in all not-for-profit. And I think probably I'd like to ask you about this, not even just the not-for-profit space, you're the default, right? Everyone goes there. And I always encourage people to go there. Idealist.org, right?
1: Yeah, idealist.org. Yeah. We we're very lucky. It's, it's sort of that thing if you're the first person in the space, you, you kind of secure it to some extent. And if it's the nonprofit space, it's not that there's a the second wave of competition that's coming in. We were sort of there and, yep. and, and, and just became, and we, you know, really until about a, a couple of years ago, didn't do any marketing at all it was all completely word of mouth. People like you, people who had found their jobs on the site, people who had listed their organization to gain awareness you know, for volunteers or fundraising or whatever the purpose was, really just really enjoyed that this was a community that was solely for nonprofits. And there wasn't anything like it. And there really still isn't anything like it. And that's why when you say default, it's sort of the only, and globally with, you know, with, the, with the global reach there are some citywide job boards that focus on you know, cultural centers in Chicago, for example, or association uh, that are serving a specific industry, but really not one that is to the scale that, that we're at. And we're very grateful for
0: that.
1: LinkedIn, and he works in the non for,
0: uh, nonprofit sector. So I guess there's there are some service offerings there, but that's a behemoth of cross sectors, geographies, industries in a way that's not just not-for-profit. So how would you compare or contrast yourself with say a LinkedIn?
1: So one, LinkedIn has billions of dollars, so they have much fancier technology than we have. But our technology is very good. We are, we're very proud of our engineering team and they they do amazing work. But we're a team of 35. LinkedIn probably has you know 35,000 or, or something. yeah, something like that. But what we do to serve the industry, and this is how we remain a nonprofit is we keep our prices very low. And if you're going to post a job on LinkedIn or indeed or Monster, which sometimes will give you nonprofit discounts, sometimes they don't. And when LinkedIn's nonprofit arm is sort of that, is they want the non- the larger nonprofits to come on board, and they give them you know a better rate than the, the for profits, but the pricing is like 10% of that. For idealist, uh, it's 105 dollars to post as a nonprofit. LinkedIn, Indeed, Monsters. Those, the, I mean, those jobs can get uh, much you know much more expensive than that. And what we serve is not thousands of people per application. And you'll you won't get hundreds of you know applicants and thousands of people looking, but you'll get a couple hundred people looking at your job and then a couple dozen applicants that are very quality. People who know idealist come to our site because they're passionate and driven individuals and they want something more out of their work. And we're known as the place, some people call us the, the place for having a cool job. And I always picked that term because the cool bent that you know you're doing good work uh, on top of actually doing work. So that, I always thought that was fun. Do you um
0: do you find so on the caring economy we talk all the time about uh, purpose driven careers, purpose driven businesses. Do you? And I'm of the belief that in fact we're on trend in a sense. I know it sounds a little bit off to say it that way, but but it seems to me, particularly with the wake-up call that the pandemic has been, that people are a little bit more introspective and think about their own purpose and where they spend their time and their careers, and that that purpose-driven focus is greater and greater. Is that something you're witnessing in either traffic or jobs placed or things like that?
1: 100%, and a lot of feedback has, come to us over the course of 2020, I mean, everyone reached out and said, what can we do? We're all remote. What can we do? So some of the adjustments that we made, and, and I think this was sort of happening in the industry, as you probably saw, a lot of the university programs were starting you know, with CSR programs or something or sustainability programs, or there was a focus on it. Uh, and people were collecting around some of those terms. And, and I would say starting in maybe 2012 to 15-ish, you know, there are some corporate companies that were using CSR as a way to greenwash or just say like, you know, put out marketing products, that everything was under the marketing team, wasn't really doing much like good work. But in 2015-ish, we really started hearing more and more that there was a lot more of this work going on and corporations were taking it more seriously. And then 2020 was just sort of like the, like, you know, spark for everyone to start focusing on, okay, this is a different way of doing business now that Everyone has a focus on social good. This is, we're all in this together. And that's one of the strange benefits I think that came out of the pandemics. Everyone felt much more united in the sense that this could affect everyone. So, how can we all work together? And yes. some of the ideas did, which were really interesting, is we pivoted for 25 years, we had only allowed nonprofit organizations to post on the site. So you had to be a registered nonprofit. Our team bets that you have the legal status, that you have a working website, that you have people actually doing work on the ground or wh- whatever you're doing. And, and you could be a nonprofit, you could be government, you know, anything in that realm, but not a business. And what we heard from our audience was that there were all these jobs and, and companies doing good things too. And we expanded after 25 years of only serving the nonprofit sector into a uh, allowing anybody to post on idealist as long as it's a social impact job so now any business can post something that is in diversity and inclusion or sustainability or having to do with their employee engagement or citizenship or philanthropy uh, or those kind of those kind of positions so we're it was a big step for us and it really I don't think anybody really thought we would ever go that direction but Mm -hmm. uh, we have and we were expecting sort of negative feedback to some extent. We thought our audience only wanted nonprofits. They only wanted uh, those traditional NGOs and government jobs. And uh, so we were waiting for all this negative feedback and it actually never came. People enjoy looking at the businesses that we that we approve, you know, their, their business, make sure they're doing good work, make sure the roles that they're posting are doing good work. And it's been uh, really amazing to see people like Verizon using Idealist to find somebody to work in their corporate social responsibility uh, mm-hmm. Department, and uh, we know that that was our audience. And the definition of of social good or social impact is now gone beyond nonprofit. It is mm-hmm. really everyone is working towards this to some extent.
0: Look, I've done a lot of volunteers and myself throughout the years. Worked a little bit in not-for-profits, but I've mostly been in the private sector, which is the just my book and my work. And I think you know the fact is they've got the deepest pockets. They've got the deepest, deepest bench strength, and. I don't think one should limit themselves to just not for profits to have a purposeful driven career or life. And in fact, when you look at these societal issues, the climate issues, sometimes I think that the private sector offers more potential upside for people who want to make that difference. And I think your move
1: was a, a wise one. Thank you. And, and we certainly see that the private sector is also getting better at it. Whereas before they would kind of throw money at places and just say, you know, let's hope for the best, but now they're hiring people like partnership managers that their entire job is to partner with the local nonprofits to make sure that whatever funding and they're building up their own internal teams, so they have more people working on uh, on on the issues that they care about that are sometimes relevant to their their business model and sometimes they're just you know part of their local uh, community or where their you know the headquarters are. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the efforts that we see, you know, are just really nicely, uh, they're nicely done. And, and you're right, they have a lot more support when it comes to, to finance and the human resources support. So it's, you know, we're welcoming them, obviously, into the social good sector. And, and we see that as really, you know, a path going forward where it's, everyone is working you know, more closely together to get the best results.
0: So I'd like to ask you about trends within trends that you might be seeing and then also as an internationalist about the international aspects of idealist i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the international aspect are you you've said in most countries except north korea which actually i just today's my fifth year anniversary of having visited north korea oh
1: really oh amazing you should do Uh, a whole podcast about that if you haven't already
0: (laughs) Uh, i mean you know i always believe in trying to get down to the person to person level and that reinforced for me that the people that I met, um, although obviously were carefully selected, were still deeply interested in the West and knew more about our government and our economics often, I found, than some of our own young people. And they just want to engage with the world. So who could be against that? You know, the regime is one thing, but the people are quite, I think, um, quite an amazing set of people. But. Um, when you go internationally where do you see idealists uh having greatest traction is it anglophone countries is it uh, i don't even know if your site is in other languages or not.
1: we are and we, we we have an interesting international history at first we had a, a website that was all in french and i mean it was english and french was the second option and then spanish was added to that and uh and then we sort of rebuilt the site and uh are now in english and Spanish and Portuguese. So we have a a small international team, we call them the global organizing team that are really going to communities and saying, how can we support you? And some of these communities are posting jobs and some of them just want support of like, who is around us and how can we bring awareness to what we're doing to the international community. So we have someone uh, who's currently in Ecuador that is solely going uh, to all of the countries in South America and being part of conferences and just letting people know that we're around and we can help. Uh, there's somebody focused on Portugal and Brazil, and Brazil is a burgeoning market when it comes to people really wanting to focus their time and their money on social good. And we have another, I have another colleague in Spain who's doing similar work uh, around Europe. So we're small, so we can't just go into every country and, and translate everything. And, and you can't imagine how complex it is to actually translate even the content that is on our site, but our team does such a fabulous job of it. Cause we also produce career advice articles and other resources uh, and other programs. And we try to translate everything. Um, so we see that. A lot is happening in Africa, too, and we're, we're looking at that as a, as a place that we can potentially, you know, grow more. There's so many areas there, and, and there's been many organizations in Africa that have always used Idealist as a way to vet their organization. I'm building mm-hmm. Africa. I want, you know, volunteers from all over the world. How can I prove to the world that I'm a real organization? And they would come to ideals, we would vet them, uh, allow them to be on the site and look for volunteers and 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 jobs if they needed that. So we see a lot of growth, but of course, the nonprofit sector is, is you know heavily in the US uh, along the coast. And that is also growing, you know, at, at a similar pace mm-hmm. that we see more and more people eat the smaller cities are now, you know, having thriving nonprofit communities. So uh, we're seeing growth everywhere and, and obviously international. This is the first year that we were able to allow international organizations to uh, pay for a job posting that really came along with when we opened up to businesses. We said, okay, if you're a business and you're international, you can also post. So now we have uh, a trickle of businesses coming in that are, that are international and, and also using Idealist to find uh, people to help them out.
0: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, again today on the Caring Economy, we're thrilled to have Brad Dukas, who is the actually Director of Business Development for Idealist global website and place to connect people who want to do good. Um, You said earlier, Brad, that growing up in Wisconsin, that faith was a part of your upbringing. And I wonder if um, communities of faith, uh, religious organizations, churches, and so forth are also uh, big users of your site, I would imagine.
1: They are, they are, and they're not, I mean, Catholic Charities of America is one of our largest posters. I mean, they have organizations, I mean, thousands of organizations are really part of, are part of that group. So there are, Um, we haven't had any sort of marketing efforts that are going into the local churches and faith Mm -hmm. communities to see that. We definitely see them out there and some of them are using the site and some of them aren't. And, you know, it's interesting to see the shift even from the way that I personally volunteered, which was through the church, and then now it's through, you know, more issue area based. And I think there's a trend that we're seeing across the country when it comes to that, that the the activities that are happening inside of a church are a little bit less than, you know, the people who are gathering outside and saying, well, we just care about the environment, or we just care about uh, animals, or children, or education, or whatever it is. And, you know, we'll see how that ends up. You know, I'm curious. It's something that I'm watching just to see how, you know, how religion and the faith-based communities um and, and the establishments, you know, the actual physical establishments that surround those, um, you know, really come, you know, in the next 10 years or so.
0: I mean, I'm thinking here in New York, like God's Love we deliver is a non-denominational food delivery service, right? And so um either way, it's great, right? Whether it's through a faith community or through a nonprofit like God's love, it's great to have people engaging more. Yep. Um, So let's shift a little bit to Stanford, your hometown now, I guess. Uh, So you were elected to public office there. How did that all come about from Wisconsin to Manhattan to the bedroom community of Stanford, Connecticut?
1: Yeah, it's something I never would have expected. And (laughs) I had no interest in being in politics. I always sort of stayed out of politics to some extent. I just was you know never that interested in the national issues and you know would would vote and and do my due diligence when it came to wherever i was living and electing you know the the the, i guess the council men and women in, in manhattan which is where i voted for almost 20 years um so i my my husband and i have been in sanford for about five years and coming from manhattan we were very you know busy centric people had a lot of things going on businesses and jobs and friends and all kinds of groups were part of. And the peninsula that we live in, in Sanford has basically one traffic light that you go in and out of the community. And this traffic light we would drive to every single day, multiple times a day and sit there for about five minutes because it was so poorly timed. It wasn't tracking the cross directional traffic properly. So I started asking around, you know, to our representatives, to people we know, I was like, hey, what's going on with this traffic light? Like, you know, where are we're, we're these like type A, you know, trying to get in the city, trying to commute, you know, trying to get back, trying to take over, like doing all these things and sitting at this traffic light was like the bane of our existence for the first like 12 months that we lived there. So I realized, and, and the governor of Connecticut grew up in our district. And I was like, how long has this been going on? If If, if, if the governor can't do something about this traffic light, I am going to do something about this traffic light. So I literally ran and it was, I was elected 16 months after I moved to the community and I I did it twofold. One, I wanted to fix a traffic light and two, I wanted to meet everyone. I thought I'm a social person. I like to know people. I wanted to see, you know, what the community was really like. And I did the whole, you know, I I probably went to 95% or so, maybe a little bit more of each door in the household, which is a couple thousand and said, Hey, I'm your neighbor. You don't know who I am. Cause I just moved here, but I want to fix this traffic light and, you know, uh, vote for me so I can do that for you. And, uh, and it's totally volunteer. And I didn't realize how much work it was going to be because people who were introducing me to this, said, that's ah, going to be a couple of meetings a month. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I can do a couple of meetings a month. No problem. And it's all after hours. It uh, turns out it's uh, twenty to forty hours a week, all after work. Um, sometimes the meetings start at six thirty in the evening and go until two thirty in the morning. It is an incredible amount of work, and and depending on what issues are you know coming up that are contentious or not contentious, but but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to have um, a say in your local government, and you know when we look at twenty twenty and all the things that went on. I just kept telling people go and vote for your look at who's running in your municipal election and understand who is serving you and what they're doing and who they're hiring. I mean, the police captains and the people who are spending your tax money and the people who are cleaning up your parks. Like those are all people that if you're involved in municipal, Government, you're you're interviewing them. You understand where they're coming from. You understand the challenges and and how to get them to be more efficient at their job and and to serve the people, you know, in better ways. So it's really fascinating to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. And did you get the traffic light fixed? I got the traffic light fixed. Turns out, I didn't really need to be elected to do that. (laughs) It took about three months for me to get the attention of the the bureau chief of the transportation department. And I was like, look, can we just do a little study about this traffic light? I swear we're sitting here unnecessarily twiddling our thumbs. It's the most frustrating thing for this community. And I and I did a, a, my own uh, mathematical analysis of it. And I took like the median income times the number of minutes that people were going to sit there and waste times the number of times they were doing that. It was like millions of dollars. I was like, this is billions of dollars, people's like time that we're wow. wasting here. And so it turns out that the main street was just, registered as the cross street which was a smaller you know less traffic street and they just had to switch those two things and then make a couple little camera adjustments and that was it so after three months I could have just resigned and probably would have been perfectly happy but uh, you know, instead these things tend to suck you in, I think a little bit. So once you get to know how things work, then you realize you're kind of one of few people that know how things work. So then you feel more inclined to start doing things and, and making changes. So it's, it's fun, but it's a lot.
0: Well done. So do you have a, uh, a community newsletter you send out? How do people know that you're, you're, you're delivering
1: on what you campaigned on? They, people email me and uh that's it's primarily that and you know as as a representative i'm really a connector i connect people with you know if they're having problems in their own block i'll try to connect them with the right department to fix that or or if, if it comes to me making legislation i'll put forward legislation that that does that and yeah i have a i have a uh not necessarily a newsletter but i just send out an email um Periodically with updates, I kind of stopped emailing around 2020 because I feel like everyone was just bombarded with emails. Everyone mm-hmm. said, "Oh, I'm home now, working remotely." Let me email 10,000 times more than I did before. <laughs> so I kind of stayed away from that. And actually, I found out that my constituents didn't really like that. So I started emailing a little bit more after I was reelected in in November. But that's primarily primarily the way that people see me. And I'm just in part of, you know, a lot of local organizations that you know, people know where to find me. They also come to my house and they'll just knock on my door and let me know what's, you know, what is, <laughs> what needs to happen. I love that.
0: Uh, again, I grew up in the Midwest, Ohio and Michigan. And um, I just, I like that approach, you know, the sort of the welcome wagon, like you are part of the community, but you're also expected to give back and and help out, which you've done. Yeah. So uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, today we've had Brad on from Idealist. Brad, Um, you get the last word. Uh, You've had this amazing, you're young, but you've got an amazing track record, a purpose-driven career. Any advice to, aside from visit idealist.org, any advice for our listeners who are maybe wanting to take a page out of your playbook?
1: I think the, the most important thing for people to realize is that they can do more than what they think they can do. And a business mentor of mine a long time ago uh, told me the saying that you know if you want something done you give it to the busiest person that you know because busy people get things done more efficiently. That's sort of his premise of that. And I get that. And there's some you know caveats to that I would say, but I at Ideal is one of the things that we do is we try to have as many people in and out of our office. I've had over a thousand students from CUNY come in to uh, learn about the nonprofit sector and technology, and 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 we do sort of a soft skills training that i always end it with this you know you can always do more than what you think and if you just organize your life and you know what makes you happy you can have a job that can be in a completely different field than what you're volunteering in you can volunteer in many different ways you can be on boards or commissions things are relatively easy to you know get a hold of if you're interested if you really want to be part of the animal rights community in your neighborhood you just have to find out who it is and there's a chance that you could have a leadership position. I mean, things are, can be that local. And I think it's good just for your mental health. It's good for your career professionally, for you to have just bigger networks and more experience doing things. And, you know, it's good for you to be active in, in all of your interest areas. So maybe your job is one interest area, but you know, you're, maybe you're not a singular person. You like a lot of different things. So I always try to uh, inspire people to do more than what they think. And, um, and I've done so myself and maybe I'll, you know, be completely stressed out and gray by the time I'm 45, but well, <laughs> we'll see, uh, I think, I think not, but I actually feel less stressed. The more I do actually I feel the less stress I have because I feel like I'm accomplishing all the things I want. So you know, yeah, I'm happier.
0: Yeah, you're long in your wake, which is wonderful. So kudos to you.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate uh, this, this time with you and, uh, and, I recommend to the audience to go through the other podcasts, which I had the joy of doing this morning. And there's actually a lot of fun people.
0: Thanks, Brett. Again, ladies and gentlemen, today it's been my pleasure to have Brad Bukas on from idealist.org. And I wish you a happy Thanksgiving and a, a healthy one at that,
1: Brad. Thank you. You as well, Tony.
0: Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy, brought to you by Philanthropic Impact. If you'd like to add greater purpose to your business or your career, please follow us on Twitter at T Usnick or on LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. We are at your service. Thank you for tuning in and have a great career.